This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation in which Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson return to continue our discussion from several weeks ago. In this installment, we go deep on the question of allegorical thinking and the modern mind's difficulty with allegory. Only here you will find the subjects of Star Wars, the Borg from Star Trek, Game of Thrones, the function of feeling in allegorical mentation, abiding peace as a consequence of deep spiritual practice, and the challenge of describing Tibetan deity practice to a Western mind, weave together in an engaging conversational quartet. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and he helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalo Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, the Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Jim Wilson was a monk and abbot under the direction of his teacher, Sun Song, a Korean Chogye sect Zen master. He served as a Buddhist prison chaplain, studied Western philosophy, co-founded Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, conducts a website devoted to syllabic form haiku, and has penned and published many books of poetry. In recent years, his spiritual practice is centered on the Quaker Christian tradition. In addition to his many poetry volumes, he has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the Third Zen Patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure to have you back. And of course, our topic today is allegory and its loss in our culture. So um, I'm going to begin by um, offering some definitions. Uh, first, the um, definition in an online dictionary, and then an etymological definition from an online etymological dictionary. So the current definition says, at least this particular one says, a representation of an abstract or spiritual meaning through concrete or material forms, figurative treatment of one subject under the guise of another, and a symbolical narrative. And the example they offer is the allegory of Piers Plowman. So that's the current definition. When I go to uh, etymology, etymonline.com, I get um, 
figurative treatment of an unmentioned subject through the guise of another similar to it in some way from late 14th century old French allegory in the 12th century, from Latin allegoria, from Greek allegoria, which is defined as figurative language, description of one thing under the image of another, literally a speaking about something else. From alos, another or different, and that comes from the Proto-Indo-European root al, A-L, which means beyond. And agorian, which is to speak openly, speak in the assembly, from agora, assembly. So, so by that um, most ancient definition, it would be speaking openly in the assembly about the beyond. So I'll, I'll start us off there. Um, what the heck happened such that it has become not just unfashionable, but al almost forbidden to speak seriously about the beyond in the assembly through this figurative treatment of an unmentioned subject? Well, actually, I think modern times, it's almost forbidden to think of, to speak about what is beyond at all, let alone, uh, you know, using allegory. You could, you could argue that uh, even, I don't know if it's, if it's fair to say even, but even Buddhism, um, which certainly has the beyond um, as a central concern, uh, I can't remember now who, what, I can't remember if it was Jim who was telling us recently about someone who wants to take away the word beyond, beyond, beyond in, in a famous uh, phrase. Uh, why don't you explain that, Jim? Oh, it was uh, a uh, Zen group and the, um, the teacher at the Zen group, this happened years ago. It's not, it's not recent, but, um, the teacher at the Zen group was um, creating a version for their group to chant. You know, like, and a dispute arose because some of the members of the, of, <clears throat> of the group argued that um, this is the Heart Sutra. Um, the Heart Sutra, quote, doesn't say that what you're putting down as the Heart Sutra isn't in fact what the Heart Sutra says. And one of the examples they, uh, they gave was the teacher's removal of uh, beyond, you know, like uh, in the last- Bodhisvaha. Bodhisvaha, you know, like gate, gate. You know, like the, the, the beyond gate, gate, paragate, and the parasamgate are beyond and gone uh, beyond completely. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. And um and an argument ensued, you know, like uh because when was this? This was years ago. I'm not going to be more specific. I might be more specific with you in private, but I don't think it would be uh, I, I was just curious as to when, not any, any more details. <clears throat> it was like eight, ten years ago. Okay. Thanks. And um 
And I got into the discussion because the teacher uh, came and asked me how I felt about that. You know, like, and I, I said, well, you, you know, it's your group and you, and you have a choice to make. You, know, you can transmit what the Heart Sutra says or you can transmit your own, um, your own view of things. You know, like, um, you know, like, and that's, you know, like, uh, <laughs> that's up to you. But it, it, it was interesting to me that uh, this particular teacher wanted to remove um, from the Heart Sutra any indication of a transcendental uh, movement. You know, like um, uh, that was that was the consistent that was the consistent rewriting of the Heart Sutra. Not not just I mean it was very clear because the version that the teacher was making had translated the mantra. You know, like it wasn't the Sanskrit. You know, it was uh, you know gone, gone, gone beyond, gone beyond, beyond. You know, like um, and. And then that, and then that was re, rewritten. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember what. So, it was. I, I guess a question I have was: Was his teacher motivated by the idea that references to transcendence will lead a Western audience to uh, metaphysics and away from direct application of this understanding in their ordinary life, or was there a a different agenda? I, I didn't have that discussion at the time, um, but uh, I uh, my intuition is that I think I think the teacher was just um, how do I put this uncritically accepting uh, the cultural um, uh, the dominant cultural's view of of that kind of rhetoric. Like I, I don't think there was an actual um, um, working out. It, it was almost instinctive, you know. Like okay. that, that can't be right, you know. Like um, it's kind of like when I, you know, just discovered um, in a guide to true peace how they had changed certain things, um, you know, like uh, so that. Um, which, which, which for, for listeners is an, is an early um, Quaker uh, guide to the uh, uh, Quaker form of uh, practice or meditation. Right. And, you know, I, I discovered that at a certain point, and it's, a very, it's a short, you know, it's 80 pages, <clears throat> small pages. Um, and at a certain point, um, they removed um, portions um, of the Guide to Two Peace, which emphasize uh, transcendence. You know, like, for, for example, I, I, it's best to illustrate with the, uh, an example uh, where, uh, where the Guide to Two Peace says that um, you must put away all the desires and wandering imaginations of the mind that you can enter, that you can enter into the deep silence um, uh, into that deep silence. And indeed, this silence is not like a friend speaking to you. And then in the altered version, it says, indeed, that silence is 
like a friend speaking to you. And then they insert two or three paragraphs of exactly what will be said. <laughs> this is what a friend says. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting because here we have a couple of things going on, at least a couple of things going on. Uh, one is, uh, and I'm inferring this from your, the examples you've given, Jim, that uh, people want their spiritual practice to be directly relevant to their lives. Mm -hmm. And the uh, so much so that I'm going to be a little presumptuous here, I think. They have no idea what in the Quaker and in, in the Guide to uh, True Peace, um, what the deep silence refers to. And in the case of the Heart Sutra, they have no idea what beyond means uh, in, in terms of uh, spiritual or mystical ex experience, which actually takes you into a closer relationship with your experience, not a removed relationship with experience. Uh, and so you have this jettisoning, jettisoning of a whole, well, what I, I feel is the, the core of spiritual practice uh, and all of the associated allegories and metaphors used to communicate that uh, in favor of the... Um, which I'm sure we'll get to, but I'll just introduce it right now, the flatness of uh, modernism. Mm -hmm. It's um, part of what I see going on is one of the characteristics of modernity. Is, I call it chrono, I used to call it chronocentrism, but I, I, I came across the phrase temporal hubris, um, where uh, uh, modernism, and that was uh, C.S. Lewis uh, mm. that uh, came up with that. Um, and uh, what C.S. Lewis was indicating is that modernity views itself as more insightful, more knowledgeable, more advanced, and not just technologically, which you could actually make a case on a technological level, um, for that. Um, although, um, to be fair, I've read critics of, of that idea as well. But leaving that aside, um, temporal hubris is the idea that your the contemporary time is morally more advanced than all previous times. So like, and if, if you have that belief, and I think it's almost instinctual in modernity, like, um, temporal hubris is almost instinctual, then, um, then altering those kinds of things from the past uh, would not be any problem. It, 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 would be, it would be, oh, you know, like they really didn't understand things as well as we do. And so we'll, you know. Improve it. We'll fix that. Yeah. Um, it was actually, you know, it was actually Rob who pointed that out to me when I was working on a guide to true peace and its history. And I came across this alteration. We had a long discussion and, and Rob was the one. I, I was, um, I, I fell into like uh, nefarious motives 
you know, ex explanation, you know, like, and Rob said, no, that he didn't think that was right. He thought they, the people who changed it uh, probably thought they were improving it. They probably thought they were making it better. Yes, they understood what it meant and they would make it better. Don't describe to malevolence what can be explained by incompetence. There you go. <laughs> I, I, I do want to go back to this, uh, this question of the, the Buddhism uh, that you mentioned, particularly with the Zen group and the Heart Sutra. And the reason is, I happen to be reading a book right now by a Zen teacher that we're going to interview on the show, and he's riffing on Dogen, the 13th century uh, Zen master who brought Zen from China, or brought Soto Zen, at least, from China to Japan. And what I get, and I've seen this with other modern uh, Buddhist teachers, is there's a, a tendency to respond to my modernity by discounting the metaphysical claims that are made in like the Buddhist tradition. And they... I've seen the spectrum going from people who are completely atheistic to people who are more in the mode of, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what happens when I die. I don't know if there's rebirth. There could be, there might not be, but that's not important. And generally there's this belief that, or an assertion that if you just, in the case of Zen, sit Zazen and do that right, that will be the gateway to everything you need, you know, that, that will be the gateway to transcendence, which is understood as a transcendence from intellectual categories. And so I, I guess I'm part of my question is in those traditions with Buddhism, when we bring up these stories, like uh, responding to modernity with uh, discounting metaphysical claims, is that just a way of accommodating the dominant paradigm in the culture? Or is that represent an actual change or reconfiguration of the core teaching as influenced by the culture? Well, I'm not sure of the distinction you're making there. Well, one, one is that you're kind of under siege, as it were, by this dominant culture, and you're trying to configure your expression of a teaching in a way that will allow people to access it. But your belief is that the actual practices will be sufficient to be the medicine, as it were, to cure the condition of the patient. Whereas another case is that your whole relationship and understanding of the practice is being slowly eroded by the influence of the dominant culture until what is represented isn't actually originally what was transmitted. Well, I, I think in response to that clarification, I would say if you make the concession and trust the practice, you're in very grave danger of bringing about the second. That is, you are contributing to the erosion. Uh, and, and I've seen that operate in, in, in various ways. And I think uh, a lot of religious traditions, and Jim may have some very useful perspectives on this, have tried to 
uh, make such accommodations and often, I think most of the time, have found that they uh, have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Jim? It's interesting that I'm not sure. I think for a lot of... Um, I think for a lot of Western Buddhists that um, they've never been in a Western Buddhist teachers, they've never been in a situation where they have examined the, um, the basic cultural premises of the West at this time. So, um, so I think it comes as a surprise to them when people object like, um, so, for example, when, uh, when Easterners object to this, uh, you know, like to a completely, completely secular presentation of Buddhism, they dismiss that as, uh, um, a stale tradition, you know, they're just, you know, and, and they they actually find it very easy to dismiss that, you know, like um, which raises a lot of political questions. But uh, um, but in I think my observation has been that when people in the West object to this kind of transformation, uh, my observation is that they are genuinely puzzled, you know, like because because they've never actually gone through, uh, th these questions have never actually been raised. So, um, so to them, it's, it's obvious that they would do that, you know, like, um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of how I see it. Um, it's actually hard to have a discussion uh, about, about these issues, you know, because, so for example, uh, it's always best to use an example. When uh, Western Buddhist teachers dismiss rebirth as a superstition, like that's that's a modernist critique of rebirth. You know, I'm not talking about criticizing rebirth on other grounds, or you know, actually having a discussion about, you know, actually engaging with the tradition and saying, you know. Like, like raising ethical questions about rebirth and how that uh, affects practice and, and that kind of thing. I think that would be very fruitful, but they don't do that. What they do is they say rebirth is a superstition. And, and, and that's the word they use. You know, like, and and that, that cuts off all communication. You know, like, um, this, this all, goes back to your idea of uh, your, your, the term you mentioned, temporal hubris. Because uh, I, I'm taking that to mean that, you know, we're at a time where uh, we know what the world is. We know what all of this stuff is. And physics or chemistry or whatever has established this is what it is. But the fact remains that uh, uh, I, I go back to Zhuang Zhu. Am I dreaming that I'm a, is Zhuang Zhu dreaming that he's a butterfly or is he a butterfly dreaming that he's Zhuang Zhu? We, we cannot actually know 
what this life is. And the rejection of that possibility by modernism, I think is very much behind uh, the loss of allegorical thinking because there's nothing out there to unnameable, indescribable, etc., to describe uh, by, by other means. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that um, uh, people still use allegory. And this is something that I just recently <clears throat> realized. I, I used to think that, until very recently, I used to think that the, the capacity for allegory has shriveled, or you know, using Gurdjieff's uh, analysis, that it's um, been afflicted somehow. You know, like, but if you if you look at modern culture, people use allegory all the time in popular culture. You know, like um, uh, Star Trek is an allegory, Game of Thrones is an allegory. You know, like all these things are allegories, but what they, but they're not allegories of transcendence. Yes. So, so that's an interesting point. Rob and I were talking about this earlier. Maybe you want to. Yeah, it's it's uh, if if to say that Star Wars is an allegory, it, it, if I if I'm willing to agree at all with that statement, <laughs> um, it is it is a puerile allegory. It is a, um, a an allegory without um, without the the resonant elements that allegories in the past and other allegories that we could point to um, tend to have. Please offer some concrete, specific instances. I'm very intrigued by your comment. Well, well, what, well, okay. So the, so, so the, so the principle, I mean, in, in, in Star Wars, the principle allegorical pointer to something beyond is quote the force unquote right and it is so um it it is so plastic depending on the needs of whatever the off the particular the plot needs cro- the plot <laughs> needs of the, of the of the uh author to continue the story in the way she or he wants to do that it is essentially more or less just a, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the fr- a MacGuffin. It's not really an allegory pointing to the beyond as, as I think it's meant to do. Now, Stuart was pointing out earlier that, that, you know, in Star Wars, there's the, there's the reference to the hero's journey, which definitely can have allegorical, um, meaning, but it gets, it gets um, adulterated, or, yeah. or, or the power of it is, is I think, diminished by the uh, focus on the shoot 'em up, you know, kill the bad guys, resist the bad guys, um, in a in a very simplistic way. It's not that allegories from the Middle Ages didn't didn't have battles and and resistance. To evil and stuff like that, but that the focus in Star Wars is all about shoot 'em ups. The allegory in Star Wars is simply Jedi propaganda. Hmm. You know, like okay, the the model, the model of Star Wars 
is uh, is based on propaganda. It, yeah. it, it uses all the tropes of, you know, like it, there's never any concrete evidence presented that the Sith are bad. They're just declared to be evil. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's just good bad. Right. And and has and so there's no if you're still in the realm of good bad you're not in the beyond you're not referencing the beyond as I understand it and similarly um, I mean the, the I like Star Trek better than Star Wars on this point because at least in one instance I can think of and there's a couple of other examples I could I could point to but I'll I'll focus on the Borg and Captain Picard's absorption within this collective entity and his uh, freedom from it. But there is a price that he, or a burden he carries even after his removal from the collective Borg entity that is referred to over many episodes. In fact, even in the more, the recent uh, Picard reboot, um, series that that came out and that i think has some resonance to something that is um because it's undefined in a in a simplistic good bad uh, context it it is a um a kind of it has an allegorical resonance for me at least that is not simplistic, and and I appreciate that. Um, in your one of your emails preceding this discussion, Jim, you you mentioned uh, Tolkien and Middle Earth, mm-hmm. and and I think that one is more explicitly, you know, uh, uh, th- this modern thing now, not that modern, a hundred years ago, pretty much, or almost ninety years ago is when I, he was uh, starting to write this stuff, and. Um, I think Middle Earth definitely has allegorical resonance resonances on many levels, and there is a beyond beyond the Western Sea, um, quite explicitly in um, uh, that that Middle Earth allegory. So, um, talking about where the elves go to, where 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 the elves go to go to when that when they're ready to leave Middle Earth. That is die, but not, but not die, and where, and, and where uh, um, uh, Frodo goes, I believe, yeah. um, at the end of uh, Middle Earth, or is taken. But uh, I haven't thought about this till you mentioned it now. But humans can't go there. Well, they can only go there after they die, or or in dying they go there. Wait, I think that come up in Tolkien. I think it's. I think I, that's the interpretation I have. Ah, okay. Um, and he never says it explicitly, no. because because it's this poetic metaphor. Um, I mean, I, I I haven't read it in many many years at this point, but but that's what I came away with. I think one of Jim's points was that the modern use of allegory, allegory uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, again, say, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I thought was brilliant allegory. Mm-hmm. But it's all, I think, the term used was instrumental or something like that, Jim? 
That's, a, that's interesting. I, I, you know, when I read Jim's comments, my first response was that not all fictions are allegories. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like for instance, I don't think the Game of Thrones is an allegory in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I think it's a very literal description of a place that 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 has resonances with our own political situation. Yeah, or uh, yeah, it has resonances, but it's 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 it's, a, it's a, almost like a one for one mapping. There is no beyond. It's just uh, it's almost like a, it's almost the anti beyond in that. Uh, and you, I think you use the term nihilistic. It's it's anti beyond in the sense that you can change. You can you can bring dragons in. You can bring white walkers. You can bring uh, uh, medieval magic, and you still have the same world that we have here and it's interesting that martin um uh has an animus against tolkien yeah oh really yeah he he dislikes he dislikes tolkien because we're talking about here for listeners george rr martin the author of uh, game of thrones yeah that's what i've read you know like that that you know one of his reasons for writing game of thrones was he you know he felt that uh, um, Tolkien's books were too um, were too allegorical. I mean, I, I'm I'm not quoting. I'm not quoting, but mm-hmm. but he's been he's been quite open about his dislike of um, uh, the Tolkien's works, and and that that was partly the inspiration for him writing Game of Thrones. That's that's so, a. Oh, go ahead, Ken. Well, this was exactly Pullman's uh, motivation for writing his dark materials. He felt that both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis had uh, very shallow characterizations and no real depth, and he wanted to write a a fairy tale which had some real power and depth to it, so he wrote his dark materials. Mm -hmm. Well, to get back to Buffy briefly... um, I actually, I, I too agree that that Buffy had had allegorical dimensions to it, usually uh, contained within one episode after another. Particular uh, particular that, allegories. That, that's what stunned me about the first few episodes. They were allegories of the dilemmas that teenagers face growing up, presented in terms of vampires and things like that. I thought it was brilliant. Right, but in the final ser- the final series, se- se- I mean season. Season seven, there's there's the allegory, which is which um, which is very interesting to me. Where in the previous seven seasons, there's play there there's a play with there's only one Slayer, except except there's another Slayer who comes along by accident, as it were, and then there's conflict around that that whole thing. But basically there's only one Slayer, but in this, in the seventh season, there's an explicit democratization of the uh, potential for um, this capacity to confront uh, darkness. And, and it's only that which, which saves the world. I think that's an, that I found that a, a very resonant, interesting allegory in and 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 new something quite new um so um so i'm glad you brought up uh, buffy ken it's a uh, uh, it, i think it, it is really an interesting uh, um 
contemporary example that has resonance beyond um, the Star Wars example, for example. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask uh, Ken a question. Were you about to say something, Ken? No, go ahead, please. So what, what I've moved to is that traditional allegories no longer have meaning to people. You know, like Pierce Plowman no longer has meaning to people. And it's very, very difficult to talk about, in the West, it's very difficult to talk about uh, um, the uh, transcendental truths of Buddhism or Christianity or um, those kinds of things because you have to rely on traditional stories and images, you know, like, and um, and what came to my mind is, I wonder if that's a, a, a result of the Reformation. So what I'm getting at is that <clears throat> I think people think allegorically and metaphorically. It's part of the structure of human consciousness. But what the Reformation did was force people to read these traditional stories literally. So that has blocked the ability to understand uh, tradition allegorically. But since human beings do, in fact, live in an allegorical world, all the, all the creative energy around allegories has gone into things like Tolkien and Buffy and uh, Star Trek. You know, like, um, so that's a... That's an observation. I'm wondering if that makes sense to you or if you have additional comments. I think you're touching on a very important point, um, but I don't describe the literalness of interpretation to the Reformation per se, um, but to the, um, the power uh, that scientific uh, exploration uh, gave uh, in which they could describe things with a precision and a simplicity that made them very, very compelling. For instance, uh, Galileo and then uh, Newton, Newtonian mechanics and so forth. Uh, now, you can argue very easily that those came out of the Reformation because it was through the Reformation that there was a huge shift uh, the whole basis of society in Western Europe was shifted to be based in reason and not in religion because it's the only way they could um, uh, settle the chaos that the Reformation unleashed. So you could argue that it does come out of the Reformation that way, but I, I think it's more accurate to say that when, uh, and this is the point that Karen Armstrong makes in uh, Battle for God, is that you had... Uh, Galileo and Newton and Leibniz and all of these people, many of whom had very strong transcendental uh, sentiments and, and uh, were, were deep spiritual practitioners in their own right, but, uh, but they had this language, a way to describe things, which just it made God unnecessary to explain what happened in, in, in the universe. And, and that God took a, a big, uh, was pushed out of the picture, the, a deus ex machina, I think that term uh, arose probably around that time. Uh, and so the 
church, uh, both Protestant and Catholic, said, well, what are, what are these what are these philosophers doing that we're not? And the answer was, well, they're, they're reading everything literally. So maybe that's what we should do. And we should start taking the Bible literally. And that's where the loss of appreciating the Bible as allegory took a very, very big hit. Uh, and, and, and we have that issue with us uh, to this day. Uh, and in, in this sense, and something we, we touched on in earlier conversations, we have not assimilated either the full effect of the Reformation or the full effect of the scientific revolution into our culture because, as Gurdjieff and Nietzsche and others pointed out, the allegorical capacity in modern beings is severely atrophied. And, and, and puts us out of, uh, necessarily puts us out of touch with, if, if we can't use allegory, then we have no way of talking about a way of being that is not limited to the conceptual mind, which, as you know, is my definition of mysticism. Rob? So I was just going to uh, offer the observation that I, that I think in the modern, in modern, um, in the modern period, it seems to me that, that, the uh, you know if Jim's right that uh, which I think he is that that allegory and metaphor is is a a capacity of humans that that cannot be entirely um, removed even though it's we can say it's diminished by the cultural context you've just been pointing to um, in the modern period um, what's that or misdirected. Or misdirected, and the misdirection here that I want to point to is conspiracy theories, wow. where where there is a an attribution of something beyond the obvious and clear, and it's a conspiracy to do evil. Sure. QAnon nowadays, but chemtrails and um, you know vac vaccine anti-vax stuff. It's it's incredible. So. I want to go down that that path a little bit, but before we do, I, I, I want to step back because we we've, we've mentioned a couple of frameworks here, and Jim mentioned Gurdjieff as describing how allegory has uh, or the capacity for allegory has degraded into the modern mind. And there's a another writer uh, from the last ten years, Ian McGilchrist, who wrote this really interesting book called The Master and the Emissary, which begins with a neurobiological analysis of the different functionings of the hemispheres of the brain. Uh, you know, the the real science behind some of the left brain, right brain claims, but then goes on to a sociological critique. And they're both very similar. What Gurdjieff says is that the loss of the ability for allegorical thinking comes about when the feeling center ceases to participate in mentation. And so literalism is basically the result when there, when the feeling center, and I'll get to that in a second, no longer participates in mentation. So it becomes very logical or very, you know, very uh, deterministic. But Gilchrist characterizes the functionings of the hemispheres as roughly corresponding to two distinct modes. 
the one mode that Jim was describing earlier is a a mode of holes, uh, seeing wholeness, seeing continuity, seeing uh, connection, and it's it's a, an integrative kind of consciousness. The other is a particular. It focuses on uh, uh, points, particles, particulars. Uh, it cuts analysis. things up. Anal- it's it's like analysis, but it basically cuts things up. And this is hardwired even at very uh, early level animal brains, uh, because you can, you know, you can show in studies that a lizard, for instance, uh, you know, one side of the brain understands predators and the other understands like food. So, you know, it's like one eye will actually uh, uh, be used to look for food on the ground, whereas another eye would be look to see the bird in the sky. And, and you can do experiments to actually show that if you cover up the eye that sees the bird in the sky and you pass a shadow over the lizard, it's going to be, it keeps trying to turn that eye up to the sky. You know, it, it can't see with the other brain. And, and, and so the sense that what McGilchrist says, which is consistent with what Gurdjieff says, is that this whole, this holistic function of the brain has been sort of pushed to the back and in our modern world this uh the uh the analytic the kind of uh punctualist um uh uh brain that only cuts things up and only sees separation is the thing that's the dominant uh uh process of mentation today and that our problem as a society now is that, that we've allowed that to kind of grow in that way. And, and hence the way out of that is to come back to this uh, more holistic way of thinking, which is to essentially turning on, as Gurdjieff would say, the feeling center or awakening the feeling center. I don't think we can go back. I think that's, we have to find a way forward and uh, it's actually even though I don't address this question directly it is um, an issue that has permeated my efforts to uh, write this book on Vajrayana because I'm writing about uh, practices which developed before this the advent of modernism and then uh practices with which i've i've formed i think a reasonable relationship with but i'm i'm having to examine how how did i form a reasonable relationship or healthy i don't know what the right adjective let's say just a, a relationship with um and, and it wasn't by, uh, there, there are points where I was going back to a kind of superstitious or a, a what would be called superstitious, superstitious or uh, other way of uh, relating to the world. I find your comments on the, the absence of feeling in mentation. I think that's probably right on, though I have never heard it expressed that way before. Uh, but somehow there has to be a, a way of, Embracing both, in, in um, given 
the imbalance that has been introduced by modernism. We can't go back to before the introduction of modernism. That never works. Yeah. But, but so then to go back to co Rob's comments about conspiracy thinking. Well, I think, so, he's right. I, I think he's right on there. This is how religious, a religious sentiment is being expressed in our society is through such things as woke culture and conspiracy theory. Right. The, the challenge is, and, and this is, again, you have to use the kind of Gurdjieff model, is whereas the feeling center is understood to be unitive. And so it, 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 it brings things together. It's able to hold contradictions and see them as one. The feeling, so that, that's the, the, the proper operation of the feeling center. But we do have in our instinctive modes, instinctive feelings, like fight or flight, good or bad, these very primal uh, survival level feelings. And the body can get very aroused through the release of dopamine to excited states uh, in response to threats. And I think what we see today with conspiracy theory is not the arousal of feeling in the unitive sense, but we see the arousal of primitive instinctive emotions. And so it's a degraded form of allegory. It may, it may function analogously to the way in which a allegory awakens unitive feeling, but it's not to something higher. It's actually triggering instinctive emotional responses to uh, survival issues. And as such, now there's a intellectual story that's being projected on uh, survival level emotions. And that has a particular flavor that is not a flavor of uh, transcendence. It's a flavor of survival. Well, I think uh, because modernity, uh, I like to say the prime primary characteristic of modernity is a denial of the transcendental. It doesn't surprise me that these conspiracy theories also lack that, lack that dimension. Uh, I, I want to make one quick comment on something uh, Ken brought up about going back. I, I was, uh, a month or so ago, I was reading one of uh, Plotinus's Enneads and he describes he doesn't describe, he places the mystical ascent into the, uh, uh, using the contemporary cosmology of his day, which was uh, the center of the earth and then a series of concentric circles, you know, and the stars are, you know, on, on a celestial sphere, like, and, and, that, and beyond that is the light of heaven. And then, so, uh, the, the idea of the mystical ascent, I realized when I was reading it, that when Plotinus was talking to his audience and he used that kind of cosmology, it was meaningful to his audience because that's how they understood the cosmos. You know, like, at the same time that I realized that, I also understood that why it's so difficult for moderns to um, uh, those old models don't work because our cosmology has radically changed. You know, like, and so, uh, but we have not at this time developed any new 
culturally understood um, images and stories that would um, that would take that place. At least my generation has not. You know, like, and I came I came to the conclusion that probably my generation can't do it. You know, probably my generation is not capable of doing it. That if if a new story, image, or structure of transcendence is going to emerge, it will it will have to be emerge from younger generations. Well, this is where I go back to Rob's comments about Star Wars. I think it's quite possible that in a couple of a hundred years there will be a religion based on the Force. And it will do exactly the kind of integration that Jim's talking about. Well, that would be nice. I mean, there... <laughs> I, may not that long, but... <laughs> I may be a little less optimistic than you are about that, but... Um... Well, I, I, I just throw it out as a, a possibility. Uh-huh. Uh, and because, I mean, you, you, religions have been conjured out of stranger <laughs> stories. Yes, oh my gosh, have. of course <laughs> you're right. <laughs> By the way, just as a side note, uh, 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 Jim was just using the word cosmos. And and um, I can't remember where I found it just recently when I was reading. And, and the original Greek word referred to what Jim was pointing to in his discussion of Plotinus's use of, of the word and, and how it would be understood by the audience he spoke to. But it's also, there's an, there's a, an additional meaning to cosmos, and that is adornment. Huh. And it was um, often used to refer to the way that, uh, to, to the adornment of a woman to beautify a woman. So, so there's an element of cosmos which has the resonance of beauty to it. <clears throat> And and there are, uh, you know, we were speaking about, or Ken was speaking about science earlier, and and I think that people like Carl Sagan were attempting to, in his famous series about the uh, TV series about the universe, which was so widely viewed, and the series of books uh, uh, related and, and unrelated to that, that there are people who try to create an adorned cosmos as explicated by science to fill the place of of the allegorical understanding of our place in the universe. I don't think it it quite works. And yet I, I do want to point to point to that impulse even in some of some of the best or, or most widely read scientists of, of recent times. Well, I'm struck by the phrase you introduced earlier, temporal hubris. Well, I think it was Jim who introduced that, C.S. Lewis. Right. Uh, I haven't heard the phrase before, and but I think it's, it's very apropos. Uh, if I think... Uh, there are a couple of quite remarkable videos up on YouTube which attempt to show 
the actual size of the observable universe uh, by just receding. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it is, you know, I, I have, a, have degrees in mathematics and some physics and things like that. And to me, it is completely mind boggling how big the universe is. Right. But that's just the observable universe because mm -hmm. of Einstein's general relativity. We cannot know anything beyond the um, time horizon, the, 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 the mm -hmm. horizon on the heart we can see that is limited by the speed. Uh, uh, a, a bigger version of temporal hubris you're pointing to. <laughs> well, well, no, what I'm saying is that even within general relativity, there is a huge unknown, and we have not assimilated that. Yes, because that knocks down the humans. <clears throat> there, mm. just on a material level, there, there is we we cannot even conceive of what we cannot know. Got so, it. See, you know, which is which puts us in a totally that, that's a totally different way of looking at things from saying that oh we understand how all of this stuff works. No, our own theories tell us. That there are, there's no way we can know what's out there. Yes. So, so beyond is still relevant. Exactly. Yeah, there's still a yeah. beyond, beyond the light cone. Yeah, well, that's 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 on a totally material way. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, uh, time space continuum and so forth. But we we can't even explain consciousness um, in our materialistic mode and. Any no. attempts to do so are uh, begging a question that uh, tends to be ignored if they if people make these assertions. Which well, I I know an astrophysicist who's who's been given a hundred million dollars to set up an institute to answer the question of what is consciousness. As he puts it, there are three questions: and what is uh, what is matter? What is life? And what is consciousness? Uh, and actually, those correspond quite precisely with the uh, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Buddhakaya, uh, Dharmakaya, and Buddhism. <laughs> how convenient. <laughs> yeah, yes, how convenient. <laughs> well, no, but, but, but they're kind of, you know, I mean, where matter comes from is a mystery in quantum yes. physics and relativity theory. Where life comes from and what life is, is a mystery in biology. And what consciousness is, is a mystery. But we have those three le levels. And what we, what we tend to do a lot, and I'm going to bring the subject back to allegory, is we will use instances of one world. Well, we can look at those as three worlds in, in a certain sense, the world of matter, the world of uh, life and social interaction so forth in the world of mind and spirit and so forth we will use one in instances from one world to try to understand things in another and that is actually what allegory is doing mm -hmm. yeah you know, uh, agreed i do want to ask that it seems like the question of time is uh an important one as well you're smiling you're going to ask a question here Stuart. <laughs> 
No, I, 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 I had a different question in mind, but I don't want to, uh, uh, this particular thread is an interesting one. Uh, but I guess I will ask the question, uh, because one of the things that's been bubbling up for me as we have this conversation about the modern mind, allegory, transcendence, spiritual practice and traditions is would someone experiencing uh, spiritual practice in, let's say, pre-modern um, uh, period, whether it's pre-modern Christianity, pre-modern uh, Buddhism, would their experience of awakening or transcendence be qualitatively different than a modern person's experience of awakening or transcendence? I mean, is... This, this is a very deep question. Uh, and i would be very interested to hear what Jim has to say about it. He and I have discussed this a little bit. Uh, for me, one of the things that has become very clear is that the framework within which a uh, an experience of transcendence, if you want, or experience that goes beyond conceptual mind, whatever you want to call it, arises, determines to a great deal how it is understood, and how it t- uh, and how I don't know what role it takes place in life. And I, I, I I've seen this again and again. But what are your thoughts on that question, Joe? Well, it's coming up. Uh, um to my mind is that in contemporary society, um, the, the, the purpose of life is to be happy. And what's, what's interesting is that sometimes you can listen uh, to a debate, say between a libertarian and a Marxist. And what I find interesting is that both of them will agree that the purpose of human life is to be happy and their argument is instrumental. So the libertarian says the way to the path to happiness is uh, capitalism, laissez-faire and individualism, you know, like, and the Marxist will say, well, the path to happy happiness is um, uh, material equality. And, you know, uh, so the list will differ, but it's interesting to me that, both of them will, uh, will agree on that starting point, but that is not the way the spiritual path is um, under, understood in traditional societies. It's not about being happy. It's about doing your duty as a human being, you know, like that. Um, fulfilling your responsibilities. Fulfilling your responsibilities. You know, like, well, yeah, and that, and I, I just want to add that it seems to me that it's not just fulfilling your responsibilities to your fellow humans. It's yeah. fulfilling your responsibilities to the, to the much broader, to the understanding of the much broader spiritual context of, uh, of, uh, the Bhag- of, an, of animals, plants, right. the cosmos, etc. The, the Bhagavad Gita is really a classic in this, you know, like because um, Arjuna is not made happy by Krishna's teachings. You know, like he does—he doesn't want to enter into this battle. Mm-hmm. But uh, from Arjuna's perspective, it, it is his duty, and not just a material duty, not just to win. You know, like, but it's a—it's a cosmic duty. 
In fact, Arjuna doesn't make an appeal to happiness. No. Arjuna, I mean, Krishna, mm-hmm. excuse me, I'm, I'm getting the names mixed up. I'm talking about Krishna's arguments to get Arjuna to go into battle. Arjuna doesn't want to do that because going into battle will make him unhappy. And then he lists the reasons it will make him unhappy. You know, because I know some of those people, you know, this, that, and the other. And um, so, so I guess my response to Ken's, uh, I mean, uh, to this Ken and Stuart's discussion here is, does that change how the the experience of liberation, it could, if the experience of transcendence is understood as that which makes you ultimately happy, that Mm. that would seem to me to be different from the experience as described in most spiritual uh, traditions. That's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm reminded of Ken's description of the, as it were, the fruits of the spiritual uh, search is abiding peace. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes happiness and peace are conflated or not not, uh, teased apart in discussions of the ultimate purpose of spiritual practice. Because Arjuna certainly can attain to peace by following the prescription of Krishna mm-hmm. because the the emotions that were giving him discord are things that he can contextualize, detach from, or put into a larger context. And peace is not the same as happiness. Well, that, that's a really good that's a really good way of making the distinction. I think that's very helpful. Ken is on the move. Well, I'm on the move because my internet was acting up and I missed Stuart's distinction. Okay. The distinct, the distinction I was making was between um, peace and happiness. So whereas you've, you've pointed out many times that the fruits of a, of spiritual search is abiding peace. I was I was distinguishing that from happiness that uh, in the way that Jim was describing that I think we could say that peace may be a goal or a, a consequence, not a goal, but maybe a, a consequence of spiritual transcendence, but happiness, not necessarily. So I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and I, I would like to qualify use of the word peace, the phrase that comes to mind with respect to that is the peace that passeth understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is something that uh, it, it's not just things are quiet, etc. It's a much deeper uh, peace and, and something that you cannot put into words. I think, I, I mean, I, I would point to it, not putting it, it into words, as, as something where contradictions are held together and understood to be related to one another. Um, yes. that's, that's a simplistic way to put it, but, but it, it points in the direction, but I, I, I want to get, I want to get back to this uh, earlier point a few minutes ago about consciousness and um, spirit, what I understood to be 
pointing to spiritual practices in the, in the past. There's a, a wonderful novel by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson called Shaman. And the shaman is one who creates um, at the end of the novel, he's been tutored and he creates some of the uh, iconic images on cave walls in France and Spain, in this case, France, or what would now be called France, uh, back, whatever, 35,000 years ago or something like that. And, and so Robinson brings his modernist perspective to understanding what a shaman is doing. He's, he's drawing on the fact that in, in the last 40 years, in anthropology and archaeology, much of the work of, of shamans of, of that way we see on cave walls is understood to be tied into the activity of shamans based on ethnographic work with uh, South Africa people in South Africa. But, um, but the point is that, that he does this incredibly grainy exposition of life in that period. It's wonder. It's really. It's really wonderful. But the climax of the novel has him, this the the central character, creating his own some of his own images uh, on the cave wall, and rather than being in a trance, I mean he he's he tries to evoke a transcendent space, but what it really comes down to is a transcendent artistic expression, I would say. And, and I've heard Ken many times in the past uh, use the analogy of artistic expression for, uh, as an analogy for going beyond. Not the same thing in the same way that we're talking about here, but, it had, but, it, but to some extent there's a going beyond. I think a going a transcending of ordinary um, capacities, tuning into something beyond in order to create something really extraordinary in artistic expression, and so um, it's 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 funny because the novel left me appreciating that aspect of how this, this guy's internal experience is, is um, articulated, but also wanting something beyond that to be pointed to. And it's not. Not in that it, novel. Not sure. in that novel. Not in that novel. There are, other, there are some other novels. Reindeer Moon comes to mind. I, I once uh, uh, TA'd a class about um, life in prehistoric Europe in the, in novels, and so I had an occasion to read a lot of these, a lot of these sorts of stories, and some of them actually do attempt to configure for Western minds what it would have been like to experience the beyond in a context that we can imagine in our own minds. See, very interesting you're saying this, Rob, because I. I finally completed a section in my book last week, which uh, I've been struggling with and uh, I'm actually feeling quite drained from the process <laughs> right now. 
but in the course of that, I came to a different understanding of a uh, certain teaching in Vajrayana, uh, which talks about um, three beings. This is in connection with deity meditation. Uh, the uh, usually translated as the commitment being, the awareness being, and the samadhi being. Uh, I prefer to translate them as connection being, awareness being, and uh, attention being. And I think in here we have a, uh, I mean, I asked my teacher about these three and he gave me a very sophisticated interpretation of them in terms of uh, what they purify, what they, uh, how the purification takes place and so forth and so forth. But through this, what I was writing about last week or trying to write about, it seemed to me that these three describe, possibly describe what it was like to be a shaman or a sorcerer in much, much older times than today, hmm. where you learn sorcery, you learn to conjure up a being and maybe do some magic with them. But then at a certain point, the being seemed to come alive on its own. You know, it, it, it developed a power. And in traditional magic circles, it's like you have been noticed. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that would be the, the connection being is the one you've learned to conjure up. The awareness being is the one where it, it's like another being has come in and it's given this connect, this one you've conjured up a whole level of life, which seems to come from something beyond. You don't know what, that's why it's called a being. And then there's another shift that takes place in meditation practices where and, and it's almost like another being has come into you where your, your attention just becomes suddenly really solid and clear and undisturbed. It's like you've been taken over by another being. So I'm wondering if this, these three beings that are, form this body of teaching in Vajrayana are actually a uh, refinement or evolution or whatever you want to say of what was actually experienced by shamans like thousands and thousands of years ago. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it's certainly, even the language you were using just now um, resonates with some of the 17th and 18th century um, language recorded by Russians and others in the far east of Siberia when they were, uh, uh, you know, people from, Europe were first encountering shamanic practitioners in that part of the world, and um, and descriptions that 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 the shamans would offer of about what was ha- what was happening, what they were up to, etc. Actually, I did I uh, I used the reason I'm familiar with that with some of that stuff is precisely because in my own uh, work in archaeology, I suggested that there was a enormous time depth all across northern Eurasia from the Sami and Lap, Lapland and whatnot all the way to um, the Bering Sea um, of practices. We see, we see archaeological material culture remnants of practices that seem to point to a more or less consistent um, ideological context for these things. And so I've, I've long been fascinated by this. So I'm really looking forward to reading your chapter. 
see, these these were experienced as other beings, and then over time, and you know, people like Buddha and so forth, it, it, they came to be regarded as your own mind. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, in in modern magical practice, that pattern definitely exists. Uh, we yeah. have a a friend, uh, uh, Sam Webster, that uh, uh, Jim knows uh, that established in his magical practice a um, uh, relationship with um, Hermes. Uh, Hermes. And the process is very much like you described, that there's a, in, in the preparatory work, one is creating a form, uh, as it were, an astral form uh, in, in, a, in imagination. But there comes a point when the form is sufficiently develop that uh a being can inhabit it but it it takes on a life of yeah. yeah and that's that's when you know it's real you know it's like the you know pre, prior to that it's it's sort of like a projection of the imagination and it, and it does nothing that's a surprise or different but when a being inhabits the form you know as it were when the god is present then then it's a conversation and it's it's no longer a function in any way shape or form of you creating something yeah and then there's the third level of attention coming in and we we don't have a way of speaking about these except through allegory yeah i mean these are experiences that have but we use the allegory of beings beings is being used as an allegory there uh and I suppose one goes from the literal interpretation of allegories as beings to understanding them as allegories of something that can't be defined. Where do we go from here? Well, it, I mean, it's a, I guess it, it, in a way it, it, it kind of gets back to pragmatism in that um, does it work? Does it, you know, is it effective? And do we need to... What on earth do you mean by work there? Well, why why do we uh, conjure the being in a sense? Like uh, uh, you've described deity practice as having an integrative function in our overall sense of presence and our overall sense of self that we allow ourselves to be inhabited, as it were, by a very pure force, uh, which you could call a being, you could call a God. Um, and the question of whether it's real or not is really sort of secondary to whether the practice uh, attains to a certain okay. kind of integration. Okay, so that the, whether it works or not, uh, uh, the meaning of work here, I think, is varies. And actually, I think you're touching on a really important point because uh, it goes back to a conversation I watched uh, the other day uh, in which it was the idea was presented that uh, meaning comes from assuming responsibility. Hmm. And so, so when you are talking about something working, that has to be considered in 
relationship to the responsibilities you feel you have in the world. This is really interesting because um, uh, I've used this uh, example. I've, I've, I think, communicated it on other podcasts um, where Stuart and I went to a friend of ours who is a diviner in the uh, West African Dagara tradition. And there are beings called the Wedeme, earth elementals called the Wedeme. And Stuart and I did each did a div- divination successively in, in one afternoon. And we were given um, tasks to do. So in the, um, in the course of engaging in the tasks that the Wedeme had assigned us to do in order to create certain effects for ourselves, we encountered a series, in one day, a series of so-called coincidences that were so improbably ever could have been, that were so were impossible to explain in a materialist perspective. I mean, the, the, experience, the coincidences were just impossible to explain. And um, I think that's what Stuart means by work in one sense. I'm interested in what Jim would say about this in relationship to Shinto and Kami. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I had a, a, a comment, and then I'd like to go to the uh, Kami question. Please. Okay. Uh, um, when you were talking about the, um, the practice of um, evoking uh, a presence and then taking uh, various levels of reality as the um, what struck me is that um, one of the difficulties is that in modernity that will be analyzed psychologically you know, like um, and it will it will not be accepted on its own terms you know, like um, so. Yeah. Uh, so I want, wanted to put that out there. As, right. Uh, I, I would I would even go stronger. It would be reduced to psychology. Right. Right. Um, and then what's the question about the kami? I'm sorry, I lost track. Oh, uh, Rob is giving an instance of uh, magic, uh, and uh, I brought up the subject of responsibility that the. the Determining whether something works or not is going to be based on what your sense of responsibility is vis-a-vis the world. And I know from your conversations of Shinto, there's a whole understanding of responsibility and relationship with the world that comes out of that. And I think that that and that I think that bears a great deal actually on this discussion of allegory. Well, it ties into the whole discussion of shamanism too. Yeah, I mean. my general sense is that um, Shinto practitioners will conclude that uh, their interaction is working uh, if they have a sense of awe. You know, like if, uh, if a sense of awe appears. It's, it's not that a particular result will happen. You know, like, um, so e- even when they pray for a particular result. So, uh, there's a huge Tenjin temple 
near uh, Tokyo University. I, I love this juxtaposition. It's it's quintessential Japan. You know, like Tokyo University is one of the great universities in the world today. You know, like it's a leader in artificial intelligence and computer science, all the STEM, you know, STEM stuff. And it also does uh, its uh, humanities, um, you know, like, but, um, it, and uh, getting into Tokyo University uh, uh, is kind of like getting into Harvard in the United States. It, it virtually guarantees an upward career path, you know, like, uh, so competition is extremely fierce, you know, to um, to get secure in. Secure spot, yeah. It's a secure spot at Tokyo University. So, so uh, uh, right next door to Tokyo University, within easy walking distance, is this uh, big temple to Tenjin, who is the kami of scholars and uh, and students. And so, before they uh, before they take their exam. They go over to the Tenjin Temple and they bow and they clap and then they pray to Tenjin to um, to assist them, you know, like so that they can get uh, a, a spot. Now, what's interesting to me is, um, you know, the, the majority of uh, people, young Japanese who, um, you know, they don't make it into Tokyo University, but they don't interpret that as a failure. They don't, you know, like uh, they don't. They don't interpret that that you know, like as I didn't pray hard enough, or or the kami didn't come through for me, or, or something. Or the kami didn't come through for me. You know, like uh, they they don't interpret that way because I I think because they're more reliant on a sense of a connection with a source of awe and wonder. You know, like. And because they had that experience, it worked. That's that's really interesting because in the series of coincidences I was describing, uh, as a result of our interaction with the Wedeme through our uh, diviner friend, um, what it, it wasn't about producing a result in the world. The Stuart and I were gobsmacked by the unlike the the impossibility of the coincidences that occurred i mean we were just standing there with our our jaws dropped down um in a in a grocery store by these by this series of coincidences and that i would interpret as a sense of awe we were <laughs> like yeah. whoa what was, what was unusual was it was a shared experience yeah uh, exactly we, we, we were standing next to each other right. and sharing you know our brains stopped essentially yeah. because because a grocery store worker was suddenly inhabited by a wedeme effectively <laughs> exactly. and, uh, <laughs> uh, and spoke to us or or or, or some instrumentality and, and of we, the wedeme right and we we both looked at each other <laughs> Uh, there were no words in my yeah, head because usually, like, usually those kinds of experiences are an individual thing and then there's an right, indi right. individual meaning that arises but um but uh, you know it's interesting that the this idea of awe um uh, I'll, I'll go back to knocking on the door of gurdjieff again you know awe is considered a higher emotional function 
Mm-hmm. So, so the awakening of the feeling center and the arousal of awe are, you know, deeply, deeply connected. When we have that kind of feeling, awe is a unit of feeling. It brings it brings a totality together. It brings all the parts together into one. Uh, I, I agree with you very much, and I, I, I think awe is very important, uh, very much in, in the context of prayer. I really feel that Joseph Campbell got it wrong. I wish he'd said, follow your awe rather than follow your bliss. Mm. I, I think follow your bliss left itself open to a, a misinterpretation back into the realm of, of happiness, which uh, by comparison right. is, is, I think, much shallower. Unless you're talking about a transcendental happiness and then you're in a totally different ballgame. But... Um, I think, uh, I can't remember, I think it was Rob who was saying that uh, sense of, uh, or was it Stuart, uh, being responsible to to the whole world around you or something like that. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. So I think w- without that experience of being part of something, that is greater to you uh, and to which you have in some way some kind of responsibility. I don't think you can really talk about these things as working or not because then they're all subsumed to uh, basically personal. Well, I, I mean, and so this is an interesting point because it's what you're pointing to is, is I think people configure receptivity and reception of experience as being the goal that they're aiming for often. I want to feel a certain way. I want to have certain experiences. I want to be the recipient of X, Y, or Z, right? But, but by bringing responsibility into the picture, it's, it, you actually become an active participant in something greater. And that, to me, is what opens up the connection to something greater is by acting in a way such that you're in connection to something greater. Could it be said that the function of allegorical thinking was to facilitate that? I like that. Um, I like that. Yeah, just I'm kind of going into the, you know, looking at that, that people participate in mass belief systems though for the same reason to be participate in something greater i mean yes this is you know why well so so then so then we need to define i mean people have to if it's something greater that is beyond that's one that's one category and another category is to participate in with other people on a social level is another is another category and 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 it's not that the one is better or worse well, than the other, de- but they are they are to, to be there's distinguished. There's degrees. I mean, I, I I mean, could you say that if you elevate or transcend tribalism to all phenomena or the entire universe, then well, that's going beyond, surely. But that's going beyond in a sense where there's a sense of connection, responsibility, participation, uh, responsiveness to the whole creation. Whereas that same impulse 
could just as easily be, you know, for the Oakland Raiders team or for the mega uh, convention I'm in or something like that. Absolutely. And when it, when it becomes dislocated or abstracted to not just all of humankind, but all of animal kind and all of, uh, well, I don't, material like, the word, kind I don't and, like the word abstracted though. Uh, yeah. Extended is probably a better okay. word. Than okay. Extended. When that category consists of the totality and you feel quote unquote one with everything or more than that, you were before. Yeah. Right. Then that biological feeling that tribalism has been transmuted into something, uh, uh, very different. You're reminding me of an essay by uh, Rorty, Richard Rorty, uh, is compassion, loyalty to a larger community. Hmm. Okay. That was a question he pursued Hmm. in the essay. And in a certain sense, yes. Mm -hmm. Jim, your thoughts? I'm, I was having trouble following the thread, so. <laughs> well, pick it up and leave it. <laughs> I, 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 I think what I'm getting out most out of this conversation is the, the role of allegory as a way to form uh a relationship with something that is beyond conceptual understanding. And Um, also also as a way of understanding one's responsibilities in that. That's why I was asking about the Kami and so forth, Jim. Right, I understand. Um, I was, uh, I got uh, stuck on the remarks about um, uh, say being um, being loyal to your tribe uh, uh, as con- configured in the same way as um, extending that to a cosmic dimension and I find myself reluctant to um, to go along with that um, and but I'm not. I'm not clear about why. But that's that's why I lost the thread. Yeah. I was sort of thinking about that, you know, while, um, mm-hmm. while the conversation continued. But so, um, if you say what, <clears throat> say when nations um, fall into civil strife, like there is. Um, the the competing factions are um, very involved with um, allegiance to their you know to their particular side and and I'm just I'm just wondering if that's actually the same impulse as um, a move into um, the unspeakable or the unsayable, the apophatic. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just. It seems to me that a lot of those kinds of movements 
I, I'm going to use the word factional. Or, mm-hmm. um, are, are born out of fear. You know, like it's kind of, uh, uh, there's a, I'm struggling here because I'm, I'm thinking about it out loud. You know, like the, yeah. the, they're born out of fear of one's mortality. You know, like at a certain point, you know, there's a realization, sometimes in the teenage years, sometimes a little later, you know, like, wow, life is short. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, like really, really short. But my, my factional affiliation will endure. You know, like, it, it's a shallow understanding of permanence, actually, but, um, but I'm not sure that that movement is, uh, is what I would call transcendence, but to be honest with you, I'm not clear about why I feel they're different. I mean, I get the, I, I, I mean, I, you're right. Uh, and actually, even as I was throwing that one out there, there's a sort of shadow of, are they really the same? Because I think when you say that there's a reactivity involved in tribalism, uh, I think that's true, uh, but there's there's something else in tribalism. There's an affirmative in tribalism as well mm-hmm. as a defensive. And so, I mean, I think of the analogy is, I have an arm. I feel that's part of me. I have a family. Right. By extension, that's part of me. I have a a clan or you know whatever a village or a corporation these days <laughs> that I feel is a part of me. Uh, I have a country. Uh, I have a planet. I have an ecosystem. I have a solar system. You know, I can keep going up and up. And oh, I, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, uh, as um, as a tangential, I'm not sure how much this applies, but I, um, it's. Uh, I wonder if some of the loss of the allegory is this idea that um, uh, that we begin with the individual. So you're in East Asian cultures, they don't begin with the individual. Right. The fundamental unit of society is the family. They're like, and this is expressed in multitudes of ways. Now, I, uh, in modern East Asia, that's fading, but I'm talking about um, traditional East Asian culture. You know, like the family is the unit, you know, like, and you as an individual are like a digit on a finger. So the fundamental unit is the hand. Yeah. The individual is subsidiary to that. And for some reason, I'm intuiting that that affects allegorical capacity, you know, like, but, um, you know, that, that when the movement, when, when the, when the, primary unit is the individual, I think it's more difficult to move into the allegorical dimension. Well, let me, uh, let me bring back Stuart's distinction that he made much earlier in the conversation between feeling and instinct. Uh-huh. And, and so the essentially contractive uh, fear-based movement that you were pointing to, Jim, is, is we can say perhaps is on the instinctive level that Stuart was was describing earlier, but the the positive effects of loyalty to a group, whether it's a family, whether it's 
a tribe, whether it's a nation, whether it's a species, etc., um, uh, can but need not, I think, resonate in in the feeling center as as Gurdjieff would, or we would put it in the Gurdjieff uh, tradition. So, um, I think that's an important distinction uh, t- to bring in here. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. You know, uh, the fundamental unit of society for Plato was uh, the city state. Mm. Like in all of his uh, um, philosophical writings, the city state actually comes first. You know, like, and in in Confucian writings, the family comes first. But um, okay, I um, like I say, I'm I'm thinking about this out loud. I was stimulated by. Stuart's observation about um, the individual moving to a higher dimension and, and how does that relate to or does it relate to the mystical ascent that Ken, Ken was talking about? Is there a, because I, I've heard um, factional people talk about their faction in mystical terms you know, like, um, the mystical body. I mean, of I mean, that's why we can see sure. whether it's conspiracy theories or uh, political affiliations as providing this kind of religious uh, dimension or this. this... Mm-hmm. Well, okay, but 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 uh, can't perhaps we can return to awe here? I don't think conspiracy theorists right. are, are experiencing awe. No, they're experiencing fear. Right. Or or or. Awful fear, <laughs> or or a vicarious sense of being, in, in, yeah, they're 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 or a vicarious sense of knowing something. You know, there's 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 also kind of a self-aggrandizement and conspiracy, yeah, uh, uh, theory. No, I mean, I I get, I don't think that, I think those things are in the wrong direction. Uh, it's just that there's 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 an element in which these movements away from ourselves. And onto larger categories seems to, at some level, follow the mystic ascent. But I'm not sure. It's a. I, I don't know but, if I completely I, believe that. I'm having trouble with that, and, and but I'm not quite sure why. And this is, this conversation has raised a number of questions uh, for me. Uh, I mean, I, I think. Stuart's early observation about um, modernism excluding feeling fermentation, if I understand yeah. it. Yeah. That's a point I'm going to take home, so to speak, uh, because I think, I think that's really important. Uh, another thing that I'm going to take from this conversation and, and, and think about is the question that I raised not too long ago is um, is one of the functions of allegory and one one of the ways we use it to help us understand our responsibilities for whatever circle we're talking about that can be from individual relationships to our guardian and Krishna and, uh, and so forth. Uh, I think that another question that is implicit in what we've been talking about just in this last few minutes is um, 
instrumentality. And I think one of the things about awe is that it undermines instrumentality. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of its, uh, I mean, it doesn't stop awe being used as an instrument by, by people. Certainly that has been past, but uh, done in the past by politicians and religious leaders alike. But, uh, <clears throat> but I think awe, in a way, throws you into a connection. One of the ways I define awe is the feeling of being infinitely, uh, intimately connected with something that is infinitely greater than you. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the two adverbs there, intimately and infinitely, are, are both uh, very important. Uh, but then, uh, yes, and then I think allegory would could point to the right way to express that all. And it may be the only way to do so because you can't talk about awe is very difficult to put into words. Yeah, the... Uh, um, the... So don't, don't that me thinking out loud, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just going to throw in here uh, as we're approaching the end, uh, another point that Stuart didn't bring up about what Gurdjieff had to say which is that um, he posited uh, a higher emotional center. And the quality of the higher emotional center is that it is exclusively radiative. And I think... This corresponds very well with the four measurables and with awe in Buddhism. Yeah, uh, you're right, of course, because uh, I was thinking about compassion explicitly, but awe as, as well. But also joy, equanimity, loving kindness, all can have a radiated quality. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's so it's. Um, I too have gotten a lot. I, I think you summarized the the interesting points, Ken, um, pretty well here. Well, at least for me, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, know. Per perhaps even for listeners. But I, I, I like the <laughs> I, I like the story that Jim had about the. Um, uh, the Shinto shrine next to the Tokyo University that if someone appeals to the kami and they, and they have a sense of connection or a sense of awe, then they feel heard. They feel, you know, that's, that's, yeah. it, then it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Well, it, it, that's very interesting. Cause I remember I had a student who uh, was a midwife and she worked at a hospital in Los Angeles but she was so good in her field that the uh, World Health Organization was always trying to, uh, always asking her to go to Moldova or other countries in Eastern Europe or elsewhere in the world, Africa and things like that, to teach midwifing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what she loved to do, but it involved getting time off from her hospital when she had to ask for that. And she was not sure that they would give it and things like that. So there was, uh, she a request to be made by the World Health Organization for her to go somewhere. And so she talked to me about making this presentation to her boss. And we talked about it and strategized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the morning that she came uh, out of the presentation, she came in to see me before. And I said, how do you feel about it now? And she said, Ken, it doesn't matter what happens now. I'm going to give this presentation. And whether I 
I'm given permission and uh, the time off, et cetera, to do this or not. It doesn't matter. I know I've given it my best shot. Yeah. And I think that that, I bring this up because that quality of coming to a relationship with whatever you're doing, that you can accept whatever the result is, because the result actually isn't up to you. You can't mm-hmm. control that. You step into this area where you just know that you have done everything, you feel intimately connected with it, and you can accept whatever the result is. Yeah, that, that, that rings very true with me. So, I, since I recently applied for a, a promotion position in my uh, company, and in a lot of ways, I wasn't sure I wanted it because it would entail uh, relocation of a certain form and things like that. But in the process of leading up to an interview, I just inhabited as fully as I could the sense that I, I had that, I had that position. I, I just completely was that, and in fact, there, there could be no other possibility. And then had a really good interview, but the result was I wasn't selected for the role, and I was absolutely fine with that because I felt like I had done. Yeah. I, I had said yes to the universe. You know, the universe sort of came to me. I said yes to the universe and I tried not to put my, you know, relative, there was lots of conflicting wants and just, you know, uh, but, but that sense of completion was, it was done. Yeah. yeah onto the next thing. And that's a very, I wish everything in life, you know, <laughs> was like that, but, uh, but that is something that I think we can learn to cultivate in our, in our practice. Yeah, yeah. Jim, your thoughts, takeaways, whatever. That's very helpful. I don't have a, I don't have a, a summary, um, and I'm, it's becoming clear to me that the uh, the issue is more complex than I thought it was last month. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel the same way very, very much. And at the same time, uh, I, I remember from teaching, I, I, I gave a course on a, on a particular book, Jorn's Liberation. But I had to explain to people again and again when Gampopo was talking in allegory because people just could not recognize they were taking stuff literally. So I think, you know, even as it is a complex question. There are certain things that I think are important to do. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, as my final com- comment, uh, the inability to recognize allegory um, is uh, is pervasive. And I, I became really aware of that <clears throat> with uh, Plato's Republic, like because Plato's Republic is an allegory. And the reason you know that is because he tells you. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just once, at three different points, you know, like at the beginning and the end, and then one in the middle. And that's. It's an allegory of the individual. Yes. It's, yeah. an, it's an allegory of the soul. Um, you know, like, and, and that's why he uses like the allegory of the cave. He's doing an allegory to explain an allegory. You know, like, but, but today uh, people don't recognize it as an allegory. 
you know, like it, it's very, it's very interesting how that shift, how that shift has taken place. And there's much more to discuss about yeah. the future. Well, yeah. Given that we just have a couple minutes, uh, uh, the one one thing I guess I want I, my takeaway from this I still we didn't get into this a lot but I still believe that the capacity for returning to allegorical thinking is something that's still trainable in us. It's not it's not a lost cause, but it requires active investment of uh, time and interest to do that because it's not the default state that we are raised in. Well, and, and I will uh, conclude by, by thanking our guests because uh, to return to the etymological derivation of the word allegory, um, we have been speaking in the Agora about the beyond in very interesting ways and, uh, and uh, hopefully in ways that align with the purpose that Stuart just pointed to. So thank you so much, thank you. Jim Wilson, Ken McLeod. I really have appreciated the conversation. As always, a great pleasure. Same here. Take care. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org and the author of several books, including Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, and his most recent, A Trackless Path. Jim is a poet and writer. He has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the third Zen patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussions of topic of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.